Sorry, it's a whole like thing with the mask and the glasses and the mic. Uh, <laughs> trying to trying to get it all ready and prepared. It's a lot. Am I good, Hank? All right. Whew. That was a lot of prep that went into that. All right. So uh, as we've been looking through for the past few weeks, we've been seeing how Jesus is loving well as we get uh, to Easter. And uh, Mike, a couple weeks ago, covered how Jesus loved the hopeless well. Uh, Tim talked about how Jesus and God loved the, uh, the fearful well. Today, I'm going to be speaking about how Jesus loves the insecure well. So it's going to be that, one of those kinds of sermons uh, where it talks about insecurity, it talks about some, some tough things we don't want to deal with. But we'll start with something light. We'll start with movies. People are talking about movies. That's super relatable. Uh, over quarantine, I picked up this hobby of watching a lot of movies. Um, I know some people started planting. Some people started baking bread. Some people uh, started making whipped coffee. My uh, big hobby was movies. I, was, I always liked movies before, but I never really felt like I had time. But then when we got locked down, which was like a year ago, um, which feels like 8,000 years ago, uh, I, I really got into watching movies. And one thing I like to do with movies, which not all the times people around me like that I do, is I really like to find people I relate to in the movie. And then I like to make the comment of, I'm just like that. I'm just like him. Like when I watch a movie, I'm like, if they do something awesome, like, I would do that. Or they say something really like, like snappy and quick, I'd be like, I would say that, I'd do that. And then I'll go so far as to be like, if I'm watching a movie with Leslie, I'd be like, Leslie, that's you. That's you. You, you do that. Or I'd say, that's our friend, blank, he or she would do that. Um, like some examples, um, like with the Avengers, we rewatched the, uh, the, Marvel's, the Marvel movies, because I mean, what else are you going to do? Um, we rewatched those. And I'll be watching like, uh, like uh, the, just the Avengers, the last ones, and it has Iron Man and all the other characters in it. And I see Iron Man, Tony Stark, billionaire, super smart, quick leader, and I'll be like, that's me. That's, that's, that's me. I'm really, really humble about it. That's me. Now, sometimes I realize I've misplaced. Who, who I am. Because really, if I'm really critical about it, I should really just be looking like Paul Rudd, Ant-Man. I should probably be like, well, that's probably more like me, you know? <laughs> just like the goofy, the guy who's like superpower is a bug. I mean, that, that is much more like me. Like, uh, here's uh, for, the, for the older uh, generations in the room. Um, to me, this is, old, this is an old movie, so this might date me a little bit, but Ferris Bueller's Day Off. That's an old movie to me, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. When I watch that, I'm like, Ferris Bueller? And I watched it for the first time in quarantine. I was like, Ferris Bueller? That's me. I mean, he's like, quick, everything works out for him, everything goes his way. He's like, man, that Ferris feel that's me. Now, when I'm more critical about it, I'm like, you know, I'm really not that, like, easy-go-lucky guy. I'm probably more like Ferris Bueller's best friend that's, like, freaking out about thinking about getting a scratch on his daddy's car. Like, I'm, I'm more like that. Or maybe, I, I could even be the principal, probably. <laughs> just super stressed out, just yelling Ferris the whole movie or yelling, yelling Bueller the whole movie. Um, and I think that happens... Just a lot of times whenever we interact with any sort of media, whether it be books or movies or whatnot. And it even happens to me when I get to the New Testament. So I get to the New Testament, I'm reading through the New Testament, and I'm like, well, there's got to be an apostle or a disciple. I'm like, you know, I'm definitely not like Jesus. I, I get that. I'm not, th I'm not that far. But, you know, there's an apostle or a disciple I'm like. And when I'm reading, I'm like, you know what? I bet I'm really like Paul. You know, Paul, he just, once he has his conversion, he's just super smart. He can argue, he can win arguments, and not only can he win arguments, but he can convince people to think differently after he wins an argument. He's brave, he's courageous, he's faithful to the word, um, he's faithful to the people groups that he is, he's ministering to. But I'm like, uh, okay, that's, that's a lot of good things. I'm probably not actually like Paul. I'm probably more like, uh, I mean, at least I'm like John, right? 
like John, he might not be as like prolific as Paul, but he, uh, he's a beloved disciple. He's a great guy. I'm like, well, I'm probably actually not, actually, I'm probably not like John. I'm on, if I'm being honest, I'm probably more like Peter. And I think Peter is the most relatable um, disciple or apostle that there is. Um, and the reason why I think I'm so much like Peter and, and I don't really want to admit that I'm so much like Peter is because I see these three truths in Peter's life. You know, Peter's just a man enslaved to his own insecurities. For so much of his, for so much of his role in Scripture, he's just a man enslaved to his own insecurities. He's a man that's desperately trying to compensate for the brokenness of his heart. And finally, Peter is just a guy that he's just continually running to comforts which will never bring actual security. He's continually running to comforts that will never bring actual security. And so when I read the New Testament and I want to be like, oh, I think I'm like Paul. I'm really like Peter. And in many ways, I think all of us have the easiest time probably relating to Peter, even though we don't like it. Let's pray. God, thank you uh, that we can just come together, learn more about you, learn more about uh, your word, learn more about how you loved Peter well, loved the insecure well, and you love us well. If anything I say today contradicts your word or does not directly parallel your word, let it be forever forgotten and only your eternal truths be remembered. I pray all this in your name. Amen. So where we're at right now is we're in John 21, verse 15. John 21, verse 15. This is the end of the gospel of John, um, which is a very special gospel in its own right. But we're getting to the end of that. um, And you see this interaction between Jesus and Peter. It says this, verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter. Let's stop right there. I know we didn't get super far, but it's important we establish the context of that. Because that's important. That's important. Anytime we get to a piece of scripture, we need to understand what is the context. So first, we need to understand the context of the relationship between Jesus and Peter. See, the way we understand Peter today, I think we fall into two uh, mistakes. We either give Peter way too much credit, or we give Peter way too little credit. You know, in the, in the Catholic faith, uh, Peter is seen as the first pope. He's the rock that Jesus said he will build his church upon. And so it is, it is tough for them to, to give Peter a lot of discredit. However, in the more Protestant faith, the way I've at least heard it in my experience, is pastors, preachers, and teachers love, love to kind of bash on Peter. Um, they, they see him as this just arrogant guy, this know-it-all, this guy that doesn't think before he talks. He just, you know, kind of just does whatever he wants to do, and he, he makes just like a lot of mistakes all through the New Testament. Really, Peter doesn't fall in either one of those. He's just a guy. He's just like any of us. Peter's just a man of intensity and inconsistency. Intensity and inconsistency. Intensity meaning when Peter likes something, he doesn't like it, he loves it. When Peter dislikes something, he doesn't dislike it, he hates it. When Peter feels happiness, he doesn't feel happiness, he feels joy. When he's sad, it's not sad, it's sorrow. And so when Peter does anything or says anything, it's always 100%. And a lot of times that leads to inconsistency in his life. We look at his successes and failures, and he has a lot of both. You know, you think about when Jesus called him to come walk out on the water, come leave the boat. Well, Peter left the boat. Peter's the only disciple that got out of the boat and stood on the water. That is a success. However, we like to remember the failure of that, where Peter takes his eyes off Jesus, looks at the waves, looks at the storm, looks underneath them, he starts freaking out, he starts sinking. And that is a failure. It's a success and a failure in the same story. We, we think of other ones where uh, Peter is the first disciple to call Jesus the Messiah. He's the first one to identify Jesus as the Messiah. 
And that is a huge success. And then not much later, we see that he is fighting with the disciples about who the greatest disciple is. It's inconsistent, but it is intense. The greatest one we know about Peter's success and his failure is the Last Supper. Peter tells Jesus, I'll die for you. That's going to happen to you. I'll die for you. Um, I'll do anything for you. And Jesus looks at him with the most sympathetic eyes. And he says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times for the rooster crows. And that comes to pass on the night that Jesus, the man he said he would die for, on the night that Jesus gets crucified, Peter's not there. Peter is instead caught denying Jesus. In fact, none of the disciples are there. But Peter, the disciple that said, I will be there. I will die for you. Nothing's going to happen to you. On the night that something was happening to Jesus, Peter was denying him. This doesn't make Peter a hero. This doesn't make Peter a villain. This makes Peter like any one of us. Just someone who's caught in their own inconsistency. Someone who's caught in their own insecurities. Um, John MacArthur says that, that Peter is like, uh, is like us in the way where he overestimates himself and he underestimates temptation. He overestimates himself and he underestimates temptation. And I get that. I really relate to that. In fact, I'm one of those people, I don't know if you guys go through this, but at night, it's like 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, I'm like drifting asleep, and I think just this thought comes in my head, you know what, tomorrow morning, I'm going to get my life together. You know what? Tomorrow morning, you know, I would usually wake up at 6 to get to school and stuff. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm not going to wake up at 6. I'm going to wake up at 4.30. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get to the gym. I'm going to take a shower in the morning, not at night. I'm going to make breakfast. I'm not just going to grab a Pop-Tart on my way out. I'm going to make a breakfast with good foods. I'm going to grind my own coffee beans. I'm going to have time to read the Word. And then I'm going to get out the door and get to school even five minutes earlier. And it's going to be great. Now, that's 10.30, Quinn. 10.30, Quentin makes that decision. When that alarm goes off at 4.30, the Quentin that wakes up to cut that off is a very different Quentin than 10.30, Quentin. 4.30, Quentin looks at that and says, I don't know who that was. I have no idea. I have no idea who set that alarm. In fact, in fact, I deserve to treat myself. I'm not waking up at 6. I'm waking up at 6.15. Like, uh, because I, I had that crazy idea. Now I actually wake up at 6.20, and then I'm rushing out the door. I, like, grab a bag on my way out. I'm, like, three minutes late to school. Um, you know, and, and that's, I don't know if that happens to you guys. That happens to me all the time. I just have this idea of, in one moment, this expectation of, I'm going to be this, this guy that gets my life uh, together. I, I overestimate myself, but in the reality, I've underestimated temptation. Because the temptation of sleep is much greater at 4.30 than it was at 10.30. And that's a lot of times what happens to Peter. He overestimates himself. He underestimates temptation. As we get back to John 21, uh, the context right now is that Peter has denied Jesus. He's denied Jesus three times, and Jesus dies. Jesus is put in the tomb. And what Peter goes and does is in the midst of his failure and his pain, he goes and runs back, runs back to the life that he had before he was a disciple. Before he was Peter, back when he, they just called him Simon. He goes back to the life of fishing. And that's where we find him. He's out there fishing. Jesus comes back, just like he said he would, and he's on the shore. He does the whole fish miracle, and then he gets him to come on in. The disciples start rowing on in, and Peter's thinking, no, no, no. I can't wait as we row on in. I'm going to get out the boat, and I'm going to swim in. I can only imagine that Peter, it, 
decides to come and swim straight to Christ, get there first, because what Peter imagines is that when he interacts with Jesus, Jesus is going to immediately forgive him. Because, I mean, it was Peter, by the way, that, that Jesus said, don't just forgive your enemy once or twice, but 70 times 7. I mean, that, Peter was the one Jesus said that to. So Peter's probably thinking, yeah, I failed. And yeah, I'm hurting. And yeah, that keeps me up at night. But finally, I'm going to get closure. Finally, I'm going to come back to this guy that I know is faithful to forgive me. He's talked about forgiveness. And as soon as I get to Jesus, he's going to open up his arms and he's going to forgive me. And everything's going to be all right. We're going to go back to the life we had. We're not going to even think about this little blip where I was unfaithful and where I ran back to my uh, security and I ran back to my comforts. We're just going to keep on moving like, like nothing ever happened. Like that whole crucifixion, me whole denying him, like that never happened. Now as we find out, that's not Jesus' plan for that. Jesus doesn't just open his arms around Peter and say, oh, Peter, I know you messed up, but it's okay, buddy. No. Jesus confronts Peter in the midst of his insecurity. We see this. Um, when they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? A couple important notes for that. Three really important notes, actually. One, Simon. That's not Jesus' name for Peter. Jesus gave Peter the name Peter, and yet he calls him Simon. That's like being called by your first and middle name when you do something wrong by your parents. Like, Quentin Martin, I can't believe you just... Uh, like, that is... That is that, I'm sure Peter felt that, that shame. But also, Jesus is like, this is the old you. The guy I'm speaking to right now. The fisherman. The guy that's out here just living his life. Trying to cover his insecurities. Simon. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? More than these, I can only imagine that Jesus stretched out his arms to the fish and the nets and the boat, and he says, you love me more than these? You love me more than this past life? You love me more than this comfort? Because I know that when you denied me, and when you thought all was lost, in the midst of your pain and your failure, you went running back to this comfort. You went running back to this thing that thought would bring you identity when you lost all your identity in me. And you thought that would bring identity. Do you love me more than these? These things you're trying to, to find identity in, to find comfort in, you love me more than these? And the last aspect of that, we're going to have to brush off our Greek a little bit to get to it, is the love that Jesus says. You know, there are seven words for love in the Greek. He says agapaos. You guys know the noun verb. It's uh, agape. This is the purest form of love. This is the pure, holy, complete commitment kind of love. That's what Jesus says. Do you agapaos love me? Simon. So Peter says back. Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Peter banks on Jesus's omnipotence right there. He says, Jesus, I mean, you know everything. You, you know how I feel about you. you. You know that. You know that. You're sovereign. You know that I love you. But the word for love that Peter uses is not agapaos. It is phileo. Phileo is a brotherly love. An affectionate love. Peter can't answer Agapaz. And it's not because Peter doesn't want to answer Agapaz. He wants to. I like to think that he has a desperate, burning desire in his heart to say, Yes, Lord, I Agapaz love you. I fully committed, fully holy love for you. But then there's another side of his heart that says, Peter, you can't say that to him. You failed him. You denied him three times after you said you would lay your life down for him. He's the one that died, not you. 
After all your failures, Peter, you're going to look at him in the eye and say, Agapaos love you? Peter, you're not good enough to say, Agapaos love you. So what Peter says is, I phileo love you. I love you like a brother. I feel this great affection towards you. It's not quite this holy commitment, but I, I can't. I, I'm not good enough to be able to say that. I don't have the moral integrity or the character um, integrity to say that. I can only say, I phileo love you. What Jesus is asking Peter is if Peter would be able to risk it again. Would Peter be able to risk his reputation, his identity, his livelihood for the sake of Christ and for the sake of his own failures? Could Peter grapple with the sake that he could fail again if he followed Jesus? That's what Jesus is asking. Are you willing to embrace the insecurity and the pain that you may have to face if you follow me again. You see, recently, past couple years, I've gotten into this, um, this I, I kind of like personality tests, personality indicators, all that good stuff. Um, I had a counseling degree before I had a, uh, or I had a counseling major before I had a, a biblical studies major. But um, the one I really like recently, and it's pretty popular right now, is the Enneagram. You guys ever heard of that, the Enneagram? And the reason I like the Enneagram is not because it tells you, hey, this is what you are, this is what you'll always be, this is what you're stuck with. Like, uh, a lot of personality tests, I feel like, tell you that. Like, this is what you are. This is what you always be. This is the personality you have. This is the personality you're just going to have to learn to work with for the rest of your life. The Enneagram instead says, uh, instead it says that you, you have one of probably uh, nine core motivations, right? You have one of, of nine core motivations. And the way that you've developed this core motivation is at some point during your childhood, you noticed how scary and how painful the world was around you, and how you were not emotionally prepared for it, so you formed some defense mechanism that brought you comfort and that brought you love at whatever time you had to make it. And now, as an adult, you're still stuck with that. And the Enneagram says, you don't have to be stuck with that. First, you need to recognize it and then see how you are more of a complete person this one thing. For me personally, um, and don't even take the test. It's not even worth it. Just read all the, just read all the entries, and whichever one makes you the most uncomfortable, that's probably you. Um, uh, and that's at least what happened with me. For me, uh, after I read the description for the three of the Enneagram, uh, I felt very embarrassed and very seen. Um, but it was, it was the one that says, you, you only feel love. Your core motivation for love and for security is when people give you praise. And, that, that, and that, that's for me. Um, for other people, it's different things. Like Leslie is, is more of a more of a six. It is a you feel security when you know all the all the exit strategies. When you know when you know when you're a worst case scenario kind of person, and you know all the ways where you can gain control of the situation. You know there are a lot of good aspects to those, but the bad aspect is that sometimes those limit you. Those put a box around you. So whatever you've developed growing up to bring yourself security and bring yourself peace, kind of keeps you. From a, from a full acceptance of all the other ways that you can find security, love, and peace. Put you in a box. For Peter, I'm not going to sit here and try to pretend I know what number Peter was, but I know this, in the midst of his failure, in the midst of his pain, in the midst of his insecurity, what did he do? He went running back to fishing. He went running back to his old life. He went back to what he had been taught ever since he was a child, to find identity in and to find comfort in. And that is what he knew. And so Peter, you would think, this guy needs some counseling. 
Like this guy, we need to like bring him into an office. Jesus should bring him into an office to lay him down on the couch, kind of get him to start at the beginning, kind of tell his whole life story. Jesus takes some notes, you know, gives him some great advice. They meet like for 12 sessions for like 12 weeks straight. Like that's what Peter needs. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus, the ultimate counselor in this situation, just says, do you love me? He's uncut right at the core of Peter's soul. Peter, Simon, do you love me? Do you agapaos love me? Peter says, well, I, I phileo love you. I love you like a brother. It's not that holy commitment, but if I love you like a brother. And Jesus has actually a very interesting response. He says to him, uh, feed my lambs. Take care of my little ones then. All right, I'll accept that. I'll accept what you got. I'll take that. It's not what I asked, but it's all you can give me. I'll take that. Feed my lambs. Next, you see it, it happens again. Uh, in verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, still calling him Simon, do you love me? Still using agapaos, do you love me? And Peter says to him, yeah, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, all right, tend my sheep. Oh, he gets an upgrade. He goes from lamb to sheep. He gets to take care of the adults too. He says, tend my sheep, personal pronoun there. That's Jesus' sheep. It's not Peter's. Jesus' sheep. And, Peter says, and Jesus says, all right, tend my sheep. Now, at this point in the story, I like to think, what were the other disciples that were just finished eating breakfast thinking at this point? I mean, this has to be one of the most awkward situations for them. If I'm, because this is, because John's right here. If John's just sitting there at the fire, I'm like, oh man, this is awkward. This is tough. This feels like a private conversation. <laughs> and, I, and I'm sure they felt that way, but it was happening right there after breakfast. And that's how I'd be feeling. But Jesus goes ahead and he says, all right, you guys are feeling awkward. You guys are feeling tense. Let me make it a little bit more awkward. <laughs> Let me make it a little bit more tense. And we see that in verse 17. Jesus says this. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, you love me. And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And Peter says to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Something really notable about this one is that Jesus doesn't say agape, uh, agapalos this time. He doesn't use agape. He says, phileo. He says, Peter, do you love me, phileo? That's why Peter was so grieved. That's one of the reasons why Peter was so grieved. Do you love me, phileo? Jesus was questioning if he even loved him that much. If he even loved him that much. Jesus was not going to take this whole oh, watered down kind of love kind of stuff, where I ask you if you love me this much, and you say you love me this much. Do you even love me this much? That's what Jesus is asking. Jesus is going to get to the core of Peter's pain, of Peter's insecurity. Another reason why Peter was probably so grieved is because how many times did, did, did Jesus ask him, do you love me? Three times. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three times. Obviously, that's something that was not lost on Jesus. Jesus hasn't forgotten about that. You're going to deny me three times? I'm going to ask you three times. Do you love me? Jesus hasn't forgotten about, about Peter's failure, as I'm sure Peter had. I'm sure he was keeping Peter up at night. Every night. I'm sure that's why Peter eventually ran back to fishing. He was plagued by his own insecurity, his own failure. A third reason why I believe Peter was probably so grieved by this is he was probably thinking, Jesus, aren't you sovereign? Don't you know? 
Why do you need to ask me over and over and over? Don't you know the answers anyway? And if you don't know the answers anyway, then what does that mean about me? Do, do I really not love you? What are you trying to get me to say? You see that every time Peter banks on Jesus' insecure, uh, Jesus' sovereignty. He says things like, uh, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. You know, a lot of times people are really stressed about sovereignty because they think, like, oh, I, I really don't like the fact that, you know, God knows everything about what I'm thinking and, and uh, what I'm doing and all my, my heart, what I'm feeling. But I'm sure for Peter, he was really thankful for sovereignty because he was like, Lord, I can't sit here and convince you based on all the evidence of my life, especially recently, I can't sit here and convince you that I love you the way you want me to love you. However, God, if you search my heart, there is love in there. It may not be that agapao's affectionate love because I'm not good enough for that. But I definitely feel that phileo love. And Jesus says to him, all right, feed my sheep. The story is awkward. The story, it's kind of painful to read. And what you see is the core of Peter, which I would argue is the core of all of us. Peter is a broken, insecure, and incomplete guy. And that's really the, the core of our insecurities, isn't it? That we think we're incomplete. When I was in school, and I'm, I'm teaching in school right now, I see students come in. And uh, they look around, and they see, oh, well, he's wearing this, she's wearing this, he's this good of an athlete, I'm on the team, but I'm riding the bench, uh, they're this good of a student, I'm struggling to get a C. They look around, they compare, and they say, oh, this person has got something figured out that I don't have figured out. I am incomplete. As adults, you got to see this. You got to see this with people who have more money, that you think I better put together families, people who are better parents. People who find a lot of identity in those things and, and you think they're good at it. If you have social media, I know you go through this. That's the whole point of it. That's why there's a like button. Um, so you can see just how incomplete you are. That's it. And then it keeps you on there. Because social media knows that you're addicted to this feeling of insecurity. It's a horrible, painful addiction. But we are. And at the core of it is that we think we're incomplete. I have something to tell you. You are incomplete. But so are they. So are the people you look around and say, oh, well, they got it together. They don't have it together. They're incomplete. And this isn't is my opinion. This is scripturally based. You go to Romans 8. Um, Romans 8 gives, I won't read all for you, but Romans 8 is probably, I would say, the peak chapter of maybe all of scripture. If you've never read Romans 8, remember in a while, please go home today and read Romans 8. What Romans 8 describes is that we are all groaning for completeness. In fact, the whole earth is groaning to be redeemed, is groaning for a Savior, is crying out for adoption. When we go back to the fall with Adam and Eve, a lot of times we like to think the biggest consequences were that Adam's going to now sweat when he works, or Eve's going to have pain when she gives birth, or that they can't just even have that beautiful, nice garden they were in, and living in, I don't think those are the, the big consequences. Those are consequences, but I don't think those are the big ones. The big one, for me, is that they're separated now. They're separated 
from the God person that they walked with every evening in the garden. Someone they could see, someone they could feel, someone they could talk to. No longer is he available to them because he can't be. He's too holy to be in the midst of their sin and their brokenness. There's a part of their heart now that is now gone. A part of their identity that is now gone. There's an emptiness. We still have that emptiness. And how we try to fill that emptiness is we try to just take all these things in our life, all these things that we think make us special, whether it be how athletic we are, how financially successful we are, how great of a mother, how great of a father, how great of a businessman, how great of a friend, how great of a pastor, how great of a teacher, how great of any of these things we are. And we try to take them and then we try to fill that. We try to just stuff them in that void to fill it, to fill it. Because we know there's brokenness there and we know that, that, that we need to fill it with something. So we take this immediate things we can grasp and we try to fill it. Problem is they don't fit. Those pieces don't fit there. I hate puzzles. I'll come out and confess it right now. I know this is brave of me to say, but I hate puzzles. I hate them. It's not a strong dislike. It's a, it's a pure hatred. I actually think society may be better without them. Now, I married someone who loves puzzles. She loves them. Over quarantine, we started a puzzle. We cleared our kitchen table. Couldn't use it for weeks. And threw all these pieces on there. And this is about how involved I was with the puzzle-making process. I am so excited for the first five minutes when we just flip all those pieces over. And then you're not going to see me again near that puzzle until the last five minutes where I can put that last piece on. That's me with puzzles. Never in my life have I sat down and done a puzzle from beginning to end that was more than 20 pieces. Never. And I won't. Now... Something that really frustrates me in puzzles, there's a few things. I know this is, this is not what we're really talking about this morning, but it's just time to get this off my chest, uh, is that uh, they're really slow. takes a long time. There's not a lot of action. And the number one thing that just drives me insane is if I find this piece, I'm like, oh, I got this piece. And I look, and I'm like, oh, there's that piece. And I pick it up. And they're like, these two pieces, they got the same color scheme. They're in similar like, shapes. They look like they fit together. Yes. I finally understand puzzling. And then I put those two pieces together, and guess what? They don't fit. And I say, oh, puzzles have once again wronged me. <laughs> and I'm done. I know I'll never touch it again. But that's how we are. We take these things in our lives that we're like, yes, this will surely be the thing that fills that void finally. Finally. I've found the thing in my life that I can find all this pride, identity, and purpose in, and it can finally fill that void, and I can finally be complete, finally. Doesn't quite happen, though, right? John D. Rockefeller, one of the richest men of all time, and I'm sure many of you have heard this. A lot of pastors love to use it because it's really great. A really great quote is that he was interviewed one time, and they said, John, how much money does it take to make a man happy? And he said, one more dollar. One more dollar. All I need is one more dollar, and I'll be happy. You get that one more dollar, then that's what? One more dollar. Michael Jordan. Uh, I watched the, uh, the Last Dance 
when that came out. I'm kind of a big NBA fan, um, so I was watching that. Uh, NBA is basketball, for all you who didn't know. Uh, and it kind of goes over Michael Jordan's life and the, um, the Bulls in the 90s and, and the great dynasty they made. And, you know, Michael Jordan's kind of a household name. Everyone knows it. He's kind of probably going to be seen as the greatest athlete of all time um, or at least the greatest cultural athlete of all time, most likely. He probably had, had made some of the greatest uh, cultural impact that we'll ever see in an athlete. And the only thing I can see when I'm watching that documentary is how incomplete he still is. I mean, they're interviewing him, like, to this day, and you can still see there's just something in his eyes and the way he says it. Like, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough for him. Even back in the 90s when he was, when he was MJ, when he was the GOAT in his prime, even then he was still pursuing things like gambling. He was still having family issues. He was dealing with this and this. And you wonder why. You're like, why is someone who has everything, just why is he still reaching for more? It's because he's trying to fill that void. So naturally, when it comes to us, when, we're, when we think we're just the greatest parents or the greatest business people, or the greatest even friends, or the greatest husbands or the greatest wives, we take those parts of our identity and we try to fill them in that void. But they don't fit. They're not meant to go there. So when Jesus looks at Peter and he says, you love me more than these? You love me more than these? You love me more than these parts of your identity that you think will fill that void? That you think will fill your insecurity? Well, I imagine Jesus saying the same to us. You love me more than these? That's not where the story ends, though. We read 18 to 19, we kind of see the conclusion of their little tense conversation. It says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this to him, Jesus says, Follow me. Follow me. Completeness comes at a cost. People who don't say completeness comes at a cost are liars. Completeness comes at a cost because Jesus says it does. What Jesus is going to say right here is he's going to give Peter's death. This is how Peter will die. Peter will die with his arms being outstretched, carried to a place he doesn't want to go. Peter will die crucified upside down in Rome under Nero. That is how Peter will die. And Jesus is laying all the cards on the table. Peter, you're going to love me like this? You can't even give me Agapalos love. You're going to give me Phileo love? I'm going to show you what that costs you. I'm going to make you Agapalos love me. This is what it's going to cost. You tired of using that stuff, this fishing stuff to fill that void? You want to use me, the only person that can actually fit there to fill that void, my presence to fill that void? It's going to come at a cost. Because it came at a cost to me. Completeness comes at a cost. It's going to cost Peter his whole life. In fact, it costs all the disciples their whole life, except for John. And even he didn't get a great, uh, happy death. He died on an island. Um, but every disciple was persecuted and killed for believing in Christ. Their completeness came at a cost. Uh, so Jesus gives out all 
all the terms, the negotiation. He says, Peter, you want to love me? Peter says, yeah, I want to love you. And Jesus says, all right, you want to love me? You want to you be with me? You want to get this completeness? It's going to cost you your life. And here's how you sign the contract. Follow me. That's where you put the dotted line. That's where you sign the dotted line. Follow me. When I turn around and walk away, you come with me. That's it. You don't come with me. You stay here and fish. You're not going to die. You're not going to be crucified. But you're also going to stay incomplete. Here are your options, Peter. Here are your options. And we won't get into this next one, even though it's also very interesting. But you see in the very next verse that Peter turned and saw the disciple to whom Jesus loved uh, following them. So that was, that was John. But Peter had to turn. I like to imagine that Jesus said, follow me. And then he just got up and started walking. And Peter, he said, okay. And then he just started, he started walking. And, they see, and you see that because Peter had to turn to look at the other disciples. So Peter agrees to this. And you see that Peter, you know, Peter didn't know them, but you see, as we know now, that Peter becomes one of the greatest disciples, one of the most prolific writers. First, second Peter. He does die for Christ, and he does live for Christ after this moment. But he had to be willing to bear his insecurities, to throw away those things that he thought was bringing him security, that he thought was bringing him love, that he thought was bringing him compassion, uh, um, completeness, for a God that actually would. What do we learn from this story? For the unbeliever, if you're here today and you just, uh, you've come with someone, you're just visiting, um, or else if you've been here for a long time and you just don't know where you stand before Christ, you don't know what your, what your salvation really looks like, if you've ever really accepted this, if, if it's more than just your parents' salvation um, or if it's your actual salvation, this is what he says to the unbeliever. The unbeliever, you are given the hope of completeness by a father who is jealous for your return. You are given the hope of completeness. Romans 8 says the weight of glory is your hope. The weight of glory is your hope of completeness. And Jesus did not make Peter go through this whole process to become worthy of completeness, to become worthy of following him. Instead, Jesus is going to grab Peter at his lowest, at his absolute lowest, in the midst of his failures, his insecurity, Peter running to get new comforts, to find old comforts, to just fill that void, Jesus is going to take him and say, follow me now, as you are. There's a song, Come As You Are. Um, I can remember a lot of times with my own mom. I didn't really grow up in a Christian household, but my mom wasn't anti-Christian. Um, she just thought she wasn't good enough to be Christian. Um, she would say all the time, you know, I'll really get into the church and I'll really get into Jesus when I get my life together, when I get my bills paid off, when I get my family situation sorted out. Want to get work sorted out? Then I'll be able to follow Christ. Then I'll be able to follow Christ. She wanted to follow Christ. I truly believe so. But she thought that she had to come to Christ in a certain way. It's kind of like me when I, um, whenever I get my car cleaned, and like they clean the inside of my car too, I like to clean my car before I go get my car cleaned by people. Or it's like the people, like, have you ever gotten your house cleaned? I know people get their house cleaned. They like to clean their house before the house cleaners come. Like, do you see how, that's, how that doesn't really work out logically? But I still, you still do it um, because you think that you need to present yourself a certain way to people who's, who are paid to do that for you. That's the way we are with Jesus all the time. Like, Jesus, I can come to you in prayer. I can come to you. I can read the Bible as long as I got everything figured out. But if I've just sinned, 
five minutes ago that I need to, I need to have like a, a wait time before I come to your presence. That's not what Jesus tells Peter. Jesus tells Peter, just come follow me. You can't even give me the love I'm asking for. Follow me. You don't think you're worthy? Follow me. You don't think you can? Follow me. And I'm going to let you feed my sheep. I feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. I'm going to let you do great things for me. Because I've always used the least qualified to do the most for the kingdom. I would argue from Moses till now, all of scripture argues that God and Jesus, they use the most unqualified men and women to do the most for their service. So if you're an unbeliever, don't, don't get your life together. Don't worry about that. Come as you are. And if you're a believer, man, this is tough. If you're a believer and you still think you have this, this love for Christ, but yet you're using all these other things in the world to, to identify yourself with, Jesus is looking at you right now and saying, you love me more than these? You love me more than those things in your life? More than your job? More than your families? More than your reputation? More than your money? You love me more than those? Because the insecure man or the insecure woman uses those things to find security. Jesus is calling for us to match the exterior with the interior. Romans 12 talks about don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We want to match the inside from the out. A lot of times that conformed word has the idea of exterior. We want to change our exterior to fit whoever we're around, right? When on the inside, we're like, yeah, we, we love Christ. But on the outside, we're like, it's not quite the same story. On the outside, we're trying to fit everyone around us, whatever context we're in. Jesus is saying, Peter, match the outside with the inside. You say you love me, you even love me like a brother? What are you doing out here fishing? That's not matching. Guys, we don't need a gospel of self-esteem. And that's a big problem we have right now. Um, in America and with our churches, is we're all being given this gospel of self-esteem. Like, like we're better than we actually are. We're not. We're broken. We're incomplete. The Bible never says we're better. Because we're horrible. We're in need. Of fixing. We need the gospel of imperfection. Peter doesn't swim to shore, and Jesus doesn't, when Peter swims to shore, Jesus doesn't just wrap him up and say, oh, Peter, I know you messed up, but you're okay. You're, you're not that guy. I know you're much better than that. You, that's okay. It's okay. He doesn't. He confronts him where he is. Says, Peter, you love me more than these. And finally, Jesus ends with a call to sacrifice. Peter, you love me more than these? Be willing to sacrifice. Be ready to sacrifice for me. Be ready to sacrifice your fame, your reputation, your money, your family, your fishing, your identity, and your life for me. I'll close with this. Um, this past week or so, we had a chapel speaker um, at Salem, and he gave this great, uh, great quote. He said that, you know, there are really five Gospels. You know that? Like we know uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We know those four. There's really a fifth one. We don't think about a lot. And that fifth one is our lives. And unfortunately, this is usually the only one people are going to read. This is usually the only gospel people are going to read. Is that fifth one. And that's our lives. So when people read that, 
please make it match the other Gospels. And don't just have a Gospel of, hey, you're okay if you have money. You're okay if you're a good person. You're okay if you're a good father, if you're a good mother, if you're a good husband, if you're a good wife. You're not okay. There's only one person that makes you okay. And that's Christ. And we are still waiting for the hope of that glory, for the weight of that glory. And when we do that, when when that comes to earth, we will no longer be incomplete. But until then, until then, don't let all these other things in your life try to define your incompleteness. Bear your incompleteness to the world and say, I'll only be complete when I'm with the Father. All right, let's pray. God, thank you for today. Uh, Thank you that we can just learn more about you. We can learn more about your word. We can learn more about how you love the insecure well. You could have been done with Peter, God. Jesus, you could have said, Peter, you have messed up enough, and I can no longer use you for my service, for my work. But Jesus, you aren't done with Peter, and you're not done with us. You haven't cast out the insecure, and you haven't cast out us. Let us be faithful to you. Be ready to come to your throne as we are. And be ready to live a life of sacrifice. Because all you've asked of us is follow me, no matter the cost. In your name I pray all these things. Amen.